Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 243 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man some call the Tafosi teaser, Chris Roche. Hey, Chris. Hello, Robin. Um, I think that's Lewis's job, the Tafosi teaser, not, not mine, <laughs> but uh, I quite like the idea. Yeah, I told you before we started recording, that one was a little bit lame, but hey. Uh, today, <laughs> we're going to talk about both the Belgium and the Italian Grand Prix, which were the 13th and 14th round of the Formula One Championship. And I'm also going to give an uh, IndyCar update and then also start begging Chris to watch some of it. For full schedules of all four series, go to funwithcars.com slash schedules. It is Thursday evening, September 6th, and here are the results of the Belgian and the Italian Grand Prix. I'll go to Belgian first. That one went to Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari. Lewis Hamilton did manage to uh, hold on to second place in the Mercedes. Max Verstappen ran up the podium with Red Bull Racing. And fourth place was the second Mercedes of Valtteri Bottas. Fifth place was the first of two Force India Mercedes. Sergio Perez, sixth place, and the other one, Esteban Ocon. Romain Grosjean. Finished the race, gold points. He was in seventh in the Haas Ferrari, followed by his teammate Kevin Magnussen in eighth. Pierre Gasly, ninth place in the Scuderia Toro Rosso. And Marcus Erickson in tenth, taking the last point for the lead Sauber Ferrari. Carlos Sainz was 11th place for the Renault. And uh, Sergei Sorokin was the lead Williams uh, in 12th place, ahead of Lance Stroll in 13th. 14th went to Brendan Hartley, also in the Scuderia Toro Rosso Honda. 15th place, and the last classified car, Stoffel Van Dorn and the McLaren Renault. That was the first McLaren, mind you. 16th through 20th place were not classified, and those were Daniel Ricciardo, Kimi Raikkonen, Charles Leclerc, Fernando Alonso, and Nicole Hulkenberg in the Red Bull, Ferrari, Sauber, McLaren, and Renault. Okay, jumping right along to the Italian Grand Prix. That was Lewis Hamilton winning the race, Kimi Raikkonen in second in the Ferrari, Valtteri Bottas in the second Mercedes rounding out the podium, Sebastian Vettel, despite starting on pole position, could manage no better than fourth. I'm sure Chris will have something to say about that. Fifth place was Max Verstappen in the lead Red Bull Racing. Sixth place um, was Romain Grosjean. However, he was disqualified, so I'm sure we'll have something to say about that. So, um... Sixth place actually went to Espan Ocon in the Force India, followed by his teammate Sergio Perez in seventh. Eighth place went to Carlos Sainz in the Renault. Ninth to Lance Stroll in the Williams. That's right, Williams scored a couple points. Tenth place, Sergei Sorokin in the other Williams. So Williams scored a few points. Eleventh place went to Charles Leclerc in the Sauber Ferrari. Twelfth place, Stoffel Van Dorn in the McLaren. Thirteenth place, Nico Hulkenberg in the Renault. Fourteenth, Pierre Gasly, Scuderia Toro Rosso. 15th, Marcus Erickson in the Sauber. 16th, Kevin Magnus in the Haas Ferrari. And the last three were not classified. And that was, again, Daniel Ricciardo, Fernando Alonso, and Brendan Hartley. Okay, so I went through that pretty darn quickly. I admit that. Chris, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, Belgium was an interesting race in the fact that it was almost a complete reversal of last year's race. So for those who don't remember, in 2017, Hamilton won the race after successfully finding a way to hold off a faster Vettel in a Ferrari um, on a couple of occasions, uh, most notably on the opening lap um, at the end of the straight. Um, and, um, and this year got outwitted by Vettel, who managed to pass him um, at the start of the race and then was able to hold him off after the safety car period and uh, you know Vettel's uh, I mean the Ferrari pace was was impressive but Vettel's racecraft was also impressive and he thoroughly deserved the win didn't do quite so well at Monza though did he <laughs> well um, we'll stick with Belgium for a couple minutes um, I wanted to first say it's been over a month since we've uh, last recorded anything at all and I'm impressed that it took you to the second, maybe even third sentence before you started mentioning Lewis Hamilton. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty darn decent feat. Um, and I would like to point out that I have not yet incorrectly named Nico Hulkenberg. So uh, this is a great start to September, and I'm quite happy for that. Yeah, no, it, it was – I noticed two things. It was excellent race pace and smart strategy from Ferrari 
to take away a race win from Lewis Hamilton despite Lewis starting on pole. And it was kind of a ominous sign of what was to come at Monza potentially. And, uh, of course, we'll get to that in just a moment. But we have to start to talk about the turn one, lap one incident that involved uh, the cars that didn't classify. That was quite the uh, quite the result. And I was, first of all, happy that Romain Grosjean was not a part of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's done that before. He's been yeah, there, done he that has. He has. <laughs> but, you know, Fernando Alonso had quite the ride. And uh, and then separately, Daniel Ricciardo had an incident as well. So I was wondering if you had anything to say about that uh, turn one, lap one incident. Well, it was all caused, of course, by Nico Hulkenberg um, crashing into the back of Alonso that pitched him up and over uh, Charles Leclerc. And the odd thing about that is Hulkenberg is a very good driver. And that was a very unusual mistake for him to make. And I think he... Uh, held his hand up, said he missed his breaking point, which was a very honest thing to say. But yeah, just unusual all around. I mean, we've seen that type of accident before. Uh, that is a very tight uh, corner right at the start of the race, and it catches them out frequently. But, you know, usually it's one of the less adept drivers that, that makes that type of error, not not a Nico Hulkenberg type character. So it was uh, a lot of, lot of commentary about the halo afterwards, saying that it, it proved its worth. Uh, some debate about that, but there's no doubt that it was it was um, well marked up. Uh, lots of images floating around showing how much uh, tire marks it had on it. So for sure, it, it uh, seemed to be beneficial. It, it, it certainly didn't make it worse. Uh, right. uh, I I would I would think giving giving how low the driver sits in the cockpit and how little is exposed. You know, I think some pretty simple geometry even if the halo weren't there i don't think it would have been a fatal accident were it not for the halo but you know it's potential there's potential that if a tire if the angle was just so that the tire could have uh, knocked someone in the head and done some serious harm so that's possible so one thing we skipped by of course is was qualifying and the fact that hamilton was able to get on pole despite having a slower car i guess my question to you robin is do you think uh Vettel has a serious wet weather driving issue now? Or is it a function of the Mercedes just handling better in the wet that's giving Hamilton the advantage? Because uh, that was the third Grand Prix weekend in a row where Hamilton has basically spanked Vettel when it's damp. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm I'm impressed that you're going after car control, uh, the car's ability to be set up and not the driver's ability to deal with the rain. Um but, yeah, it was a noticeable difference. It was fascinating to me that Lewis Hamilton and Vettel were so far ahead of everyone else. Yeah, they you had know. a big margin. Yeah, that's true. Um, Lewis was a 58-1. Vettel was a 58-9. Esteban Ocon was third with a 201-8. Who so, claimed he could have been on pole amusingly after the <laughs> session. I was like, dude, where are you going to find, you know? Best part of three seconds. Or well, four seconds. no, he absolutely could have been on pole if Lewis and Sebastian had had their laps and then it dried up. Uh, Ocon absolutely could have been on pole. <laughs> uh, it was just unfortunate timing. Um, yeah, I, you know, if Ferrari has developed the car in such a way that it is stronger on a dry track, maybe there is a way that that somehow weakened performance on a wet track and. I it's pure speculation to think about, but maybe there's inherently a little bit more drag in the arrow that's effective um, in dry conditions, but less so in wet conditions. And maybe the Mercedes could be a little bit slipperier in that way. That is far from it. Uh, that's not much more than speculation, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know read. that Lewis is comfortable in those conditions very much. So, and obviously Vettel is as well, but Maybe that was just, yeah, You, I, my opinion is not worth much here. <laughs> I did read that um, if you looked at the, the different setups of the two cars, that the Mercedes was quicker, this is in the dry, uh, in Sector 2, which is uh, the twisty parts of Spa, and the Ferrari was quicker in Sectors 1 and 3, which is the, the straighter bits of Spa. Um, so I think that definitely would have helped Hamilton, but the margin 
was was pretty sizable. You know, you you might expect that might give you you know a couple of tenths or something like that, but uh, but it did seem that he he got a good lap, which was impressive in the fact that he had lost it on the prior lap, so he uh, made a mistake and ran wide and gave him you know himself a lot to do on that final lap, but he nailed it. So yeah, I mean we'll see. I mean, but I would think that uh, certainly Lewis will do a lot more rain dancing for the rest of the season than Sebastian because he does <laughs> seem to come out on top when it's wet. So. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. But let's get away from the leaders just a little bit because sure. uh, Force India, they performed quite well. This was the Force India of 2017 more than uh, what we've seen first part of this season. And yet this is coupled with some very serious financial trouble that they're dealing with at the same time. So Force India has been in this like incredible balancing act of, yeah, we're out of money. We don't have any money. We have lien holders really pressuring us versus the car is once again performing really well. Yeah, yeah, it's a big story. That I mean, then when is Force India not Force India when they're called, uh, I think it's Racing Point, right, is uh, who they're running under at the moment. So if you look at the constructors table right now, you'll find Force India at the bottom of the table and all their points have been taken away from them. And now they... Uh, but they've accrued a healthy number of points in the last two races alone under their new ownership. And they've already got up to, I think, uh, was it seventh or eighth in the table, even after just two Grand Prix. So, yeah, seventh. Um, yeah. And I think they'd be, you know, if you, add, if you add up the two driver's points, which obviously uh, they still get to keep, um, they'd be well up there fighting with, I think, uh, Renault and Haas, right? If, if, if they were able to keep all the points from the, the 18 season. So, yeah, I mean, it's great that they're still going. It's um, I'm pleased that, you know, they've been a really plucky little team who've been able to punch well above their weight on a number of occasions. Uh, I mean, obviously, they had a great season last year coming uh, fourth in the championship. So it's great to see that they're going to be able to continue in some form or another, uh, maybe with uh, Lance Stroll as a driver because his dad owns the team now or is part owner of the team. But, yeah, they had a they, – they qualified well. Uh, third and fourth and then you know it was a fantastic moment where they looked to <laughs> go either side of Hamilton and Vettel at the end of the straight is it the Kemmel straight I think it is the Kemmel straight right so uh, uh, fortunately they both uh, erred on the side of caution and didn't didn't do anything heroic but yeah great result for them pleased to see them still in the in the races um, but I do think it's a bit cheeky of the likes of Haas and and I think a couple of other teams who are blocking the transfer you know, of course, there's a lot of money involved, but to me, those guys earned those points and therefore should, you know, should deserve the money that goes with earning those points. Um, and there's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on there and has seemed to uh, seem to be playing most of the games. But hey, I guess they feel that when they first joined F1, that they were treated in a similar manner. So then it's now their turn to treat uh, the new boys the same way. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I think that. At this point, we can jump back into Belgium, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, Daniel Ricciardo because his announcement to go to Renault, that surprised a lot of people. And I'll be honest, I was quite desperate to hear your opinion about, first of all, let's just be really, really concise about this. Did Daniel Ricciardo make the right decision, yes or no? Yes. Okay. I agree with you, and I'm actually kind of surprised. I was looking forward to a debate here, but if you and I agree, I'll let you explain why you think he made the right decision first. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it was a shock to everyone because he had been making noises that, that he was going to stay with Red Bull. Um, but to me, it makes a lot of sense, right? He he's, His position in Red Bull has been weakened with the, with Verstappen. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I think it's... Um, the top drivers always try and get themselves into a position where they are considered, you know, the number one driver in any team. And uh, although there's no distinct one and two at Red Bull, you know, Ricardo's position looked a little precarious. So to make yourself the number one driver for a works team that are certainly not competitive at the moment, but they're they're doing all the right things to achieve competitiveness in the near future. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to work out as well as Hamilton's move to Mercedes did, um, but I think it will stand in <laughs> good be, stead. That'd be yeah. quite fascinating if it did. 
Yeah, but I think, you know, given that there's a question mark over the Honda engines anyway, I think he probably felt he didn't have much to lose, right? If he thought he had a championship-winning car for next season, he might have stayed at Red Bull, but I think he's probably figured out that neither car is probably going to be in a winning position, so why not get a nice big pay rise, become the number one at Renault, and um, and see how it goes. Well, it's, it's funny. I, you know, obviously I'm going to be slightly different opinion about the Honda, but, but I think the key word that you said was works team. And this is his chance to be with a works team. That means two things. Obviously, manufacturer money, which is by far the most important bit, but also not so much that it's a Renault engine as opposed to a Honda, but it's the factory engine. It's not a customer engine. It's the factory engine. There's zero chance that he's going to get an inferior lump than Red Bull Racing. So he's got that work. He's got all the factory effort to go into becoming a championship-winning team, which Renault has been over the decades on and off again. And he's also got, I think, a more like-minded and strong teammate in Nico Hulkenberg. There's a better opportunity of engaging but not detrimental competition with Nico as there was with Max Verstappen, who seems to be, as he's getting older, almost becoming... He's he's developing this... Uh, I want to be careful here, but I would call it a bit of arrogance about his driving style and his attitude towards you know racing officials and these things that that could start becoming a really detrimental thing to have as a teammate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know... Uh, obviously, we, we've talked before about how Honda have great pedigree in Formula One, but Renault has as great a pedigree as Honda, if not if not greater. I mean, they're the guys who started off the turbo era, right back in back in the late seventies. Uh, they won right. multiple championships with Williams back in the nineties. They dominated the sport for many seasons with Williams and. Um, these guys know how to win. And also, I mean, Enstone, the, where Renault uh, ch- chassis development is based, has is a serial winning constructor as well. I mean, under different names. I mean, they started out as Tolman, but under Benetton, they won a number of championships uh, with a certain M. Schumacher behind the wheel. So, well, yeah, 94, guys, 95. Yep. Exactly. These guys know how to win. And so I can think that probably, fact, I mean, of course, so does Red Bull, so does Honda, right? So in that respect, you could say it's kind of even Stevens. But I think, you know, Renault are hungry and uh, it was a statement of intent, actually, to go after. I mean, they already had the potential uh, of Carlos Sainz in, in the car, who's a, who's a really good driver. Um, but they decided they really wanted to go to someone who, you know, I mean, Ricardo has probably pulled off the, the win of the season, right? That win in China was spectacular. Um, and that's Brilliant. what they... It was great. They totally agree. To yeah. Yeah. And, but it's a, it's a good move for science to go to McLaren because he's basically done the same thing, right? And uh, decided he doesn't want to be shuffled around by Red Bull anymore. He probably still thinks he should be worthy of a top drive because, you know, he was pretty similar to, to Verstappen's pace when they were teammates. So he's taken the opportunity to get into McLaren early while they're, they're obviously rebuilding. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, some interesting moves. It's certainly going to be a fascinating season to how all these driver moves are going to play out. Well, and that's just it. What do you think of Pierre Gasly moving up to uh, RBR? Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think uh, it could go one or two ways, right? He could you know, cement himself as a top F1 driver or he could be out <laughs> within a season. So, yeah. Um, I mean, hey, you got to take the chance if it's offered to you, right? But uh, could, we all know what happened to poor old Danny Kafir, who, who looked pretty promising at one point and then his career sort of imploded rather quickly. Well, he was um, too old. It was time for him to retire. I mean, <laughs> that, that one was pretty easy for me to see. Um, I, you know, Dan Kafir, he was promising, absolutely. But he... He seemed to have, in many ways, a similar arrogance without the results to back it up. You know, Verstappen, you know, there's those things I mentioned, but he's also devastatingly quick, at least sometimes. You know, he, he's going to be able to back up his... He's going to be able to walk the walk in, as opposed to just talk the talk. And I think that Kafiat never really quite got to the place to earn dealing with some of those shortcomings. That's uh, that. That was a key difference, I think. 
Yeah, I think you're right. But I think the other thing is that Kvyat made one too many mistakes, didn't he, without delivering race wins? Because, you know, Red Bull was not quite as competitive uh, as they are now with, with him behind the wheel. So, you know, he made a number of pretty large blunders, uh, one of the greatest being taking Vettel out at the start of the Russian Grand Prix. Yeah. Not once, but twice. Um, you know, I think the, the, the tolerance for incompetence at Red Bull is, is, is pretty low. So Gasly had better deliver quickly and consistently or he'll find himself being replaced. But, you know, the indications are he will be able to deliver. So it, it'll be interesting to watch. Speaking of being replaced, who's going to be replaced at uh, Stroll F1 in 2018 or 2019? Well, I think, you know, there's hope for Williams fans around the world, right? They, they seem to have actually started to make some progress. The first double points uh, finish, as you mentioned earlier, um, and Lance Stroll is going. So that means they can put uh, someone better in. Um, so <laughs> yeah. whether it's Kubica or... Uh, one of the other up-and-coming, I mean, there's a couple of development drivers that are on the fringes, right? Uh, I can't remember his name. He's the guy leading current GP2. He's a Mercedes uh, driver. He might be uh, He might be a good bet for the other oh, MC. No, that's not Lando Norris. That's McLaren guy. Uh, boy, I can't think of the... Yeah, yeah. he's another British driver. Um, he was being... He was an outside tip for some of the available seats. I don't think he's going to... Uh, I don't think he's in the frame for for many of them. But, yeah, Norris got the McLaren seat, um, and he's second in the GP2 championship. And this other chap whose name I can't remember is currently in first place. So that could be a bet. I mean, I, why not? Kubica looks to have been perfectly competent in FP1 this year, right, when he's had a chance to drive. Why not give him a season? I completely and, agree. Completely yeah. agree. Uh, you know, you've already dab dabbled with the idea, so let's just go ahead and do it and have a decent reserve driver in case it doesn't work out. What about Force India? I, you know, my personal preference between Ocon and uh, and Perez, I think, is Ocon, but it's very close. Yeah, I think Perez is pretty much confirmed for next season, right? So I think you're going to see Perez stroll at Force India. So maybe Ocon's in the frame for the Williams drive. Uh, that, that's probably the only... Uh, I don't think Sauber have confirmed their drivers, have they? But that's a Ferrari team, as are has. So... That might be Ocon's obvious route if he gets forced out of forcing you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, do you have anything? Do you feel like we missed anything at Belgium, or is it time to jump to Monza? I mean, it was a shame that it was such a dull race, wasn't it? I mean, after the first corner and safety car antics, it wasn't the most lively of races, which is unusual for Spa, because Spa usually throws up a good Grand Prix. But uh, Monza proved to be much more interesting. <laughs> yeah, yes, it definitely did. And... Uh, to that end, I I do want to start with qualifying because that was oh, that's a shocker. Oh man, I mean it was ominous, you know. Did it, you cry like his wife? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get that emotional about it? Listen, Kimi Raikkonen is the best driver ever, and if there's one thing that is definitely uh, not true, is that he's too old. He is young, has many years left in him, and uh, this proved it yet again. So let's let's get that out of the way. But I'm looking a little bit more at the Ferrari 1-2 in qualifying as opposed to who was 1 and who was 2. This was looking to be a pretty serious Sunday for the Italians. You know, we had Lewis very close to Vettel in terms of qualifying, but not quite there. And then Botas a few tenths off of that. And if anything, race pace was looking a little bit more troubling. Yet that's not how it went at all when it came to the race. I was perplexed why Vettel acted um, as the lead car for Ferrari on both of the Q3 runs. I, uh, I, I can understand why he was a little frustrated uh, at the end of qualifying. And I, can also, I also think that it had something to do with the first lap incident uh, during the race. Because, you know, ultimately if he'd been on pole, Raikkonen could have act, acted as his wingman and... Uh, tried to hold off Hamilton that was in you know it, Hamilton was inevitably going to make a, a lunge at some point on lap one right so that was his best chance to get into the mix um and if it, if it had been in that order Ferrari could have could have played uh, the Raikkonen card to hold him off or at least delay um his pr progress so I, I I think that's really interesting if Ferrari are really <laughs> going to you know in a season that's been so close and given that they've lost some points, even with the quickest car, 
I'm shocked that they're not playing the team team orders card for all it's worth. And yet Mercedes seem to have moved to that point already using Botas, who was undeniably slower all weekend than Hamilton, but they're using him as a, as you know, a, a legitimate piece to try and stack cool. things in Hamilton's favor. And oh yeah. So that was clear in the middle of the race. Yeah. Yeah. And very you know, it make, makes sense to do it. But I think that the biggest, the biggest piece of, of news from the race was the fact that Ferrari went into the Grand Prix having only picked one set of soft tires, whereas Mercedes had more than one set. I don't know exactly how many, but they had multiple sets. And Ferrari, yeah, no, never I was run... perplexed by that as well. I don't yeah. know why they only chose one set, but that, that seemed odd to me. And they hadn't run that tire prior to in anger in the race, and they clearly couldn't manage that tire as well as Mercedes. And that ultimately. I think was the determining factor, and I think actually it didn't matter what had happened on lap one. I think Hamilton would have won the race because the Mercedes was quick, uh, clearly quicker on the soft tire. But let's get to that. Let's get to that lap one incident between Hamilton and Vettel. I I have to say that I don't know why you would be as bold as Vettel was with your championship rival on lap one of that race. It seemed really risky to me. Hamilton was being aggressive and clearly, clearly had his nose in front of Vettel. And Vettel seemed to, and held a pretty tight line, I think. And Vettel seemed to be quite aggressive with his line trying to push Hamilton out. And it ended up biting him. I, I, to me, that move was 100% Vettel's fault. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was definitely his fault. Now, the only thing... In his favour was, I think, the car understeered quite badly, didn't it? I think he he was struggling with that, and he you could argue, or he could argue, that he understeered into Hamilton. But his assertion that he wasn't given racing room is absolute nonsense. And he was clearly taking the line as if the Mercedes wasn't there, which, you know, if it wasn't due to understeer, was, was gravely mistaken. And the fact that Hamilton was actually ahead of him at the point where he drove into the side of Hamilton... You know, there's no visibility issue. If you couldn't have spotted that car, you should go to the opticians pretty damn quickly. But yeah, it was it was weird because you know when Raikkonen passed Hamilton after the safety car, you know it was carbon copy of the maneuver, and both made it through the corner without incident. He definitely, you know, Vettel was feisty. I mean, he and Hamilton touched at the first chicane. And then he was quite, you know, if either he understood or was robust in his defense and, and, it, and it didn't pay off for him. But why you'd feel, you know, you had to make that type of do or die maneuver when you, when you think you've got the faster car and it's early, you know, second corner of the race, for goodness sake. You don't need to do anything desperate. So, yeah, very strange. And, um, you know, and Hamilton, you know, was then able to pick off Kimi, but then got passed again, as, as we just described. Um, which made for, you know, really good racing. So it shows that people can race each other around Monza cleanly if you choose to do so. But, yeah, exactly right. And these are how championships are won. It's in these decision-making moments. When Vettel won the race in Belgium, Hamilton was second. When Hamilton won the race in Monza, Vettel was fourth. And you could see those... You could see the different decisions being made and how that became the determination for the result. And to me, that's the, that was a telling moment to see these two races and how the two handled the adversity of the other team being quicker. To me, that is the strongest indication that we've had this late in the season that this is Hamilton's championship to lose more than Vettel's. Now, clearly, there's still a lot of Grand Prix to go, and if the race if the race car gets developed better at Ferrari, obviously that can shift things around. But here we are, past halfway, and Lewis Hamilton's got a 30-point advantage despite the fact that it seems like Ferrari does have the quicker car this year. Yeah, I don't know if we can say that Ferrari's going to have the quickest car for the last seven races. I think the pace, the nuances of both Spa and Monza certainly favoured Ferrari. Mercedes is very good on high-speed corners relative to Ferrari, but clearly Ferrari seemed to have a slight power advantage um, now, which is a shocking statement in itself, right? Because it's the first time that's been the case um, in the in the hybrid turbo era. So, well, I heard they got some tips from Honda, and that really <laughs> helped them. But 
But I agree with you. I mean, you know, for Vettel, all things being even and no DNFs through you know, mechanical failure or something like that, if they both finish the last seven races, Vettel is in real trouble now because clearly both teams have a pace advantage over Red Bull. And I think other than maybe Singapore, they would expect to, to finish ahead of them. And, either, and and Botas can clearly allow Hamilton at least a third place finish with some team orders. So the differential is only 10 points, right? And that means Ferrari have to score the next three Grand Prix three one-twos before they even can catch up with Hamilton. And that's everything going perfectly. And it's not likely that they're going to be able to do that. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big margin for sure. And uh, they've got to be hoping that, I mean, that, I think the engine penalties could come into play still. I know Botas took, um, took some engine penalties in Spa, right? So I don't know where Hamilton is in terms of his allocation of all the engine components and whether or not he may have to face an engine penalty before the season's out. Um, but th- those sort of things could play into the, you know, into the uh, final championship standings, I think. Definitely. So there, there's still plenty of uncertainty that can throw things around. But when you when you come to the things that are in your control, it seems like Hamilton's handling and uh, mitigating downsides better than Vettel. He is uh, taking better command of what he does have control over as opposed to Vettel, who may... You know, you just seems to see red more often and uh, affects his judgment. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see how the cars develop and, you know, what the weather conditions are like and tire choices that are made and these things and how that plays. But uh, when you just look at actual driver judgment, it seems like Hamilton has the edge there, at least right now. Um do you know, I, I this is kind of shameful for me to say, but it's honest, why was Romain Grosjean disqualified? Uh, his floor didn't uh, didn't meet the rules. I guess they, they made a change, you know, some of the F1 rules about, you know, how you measure certain dimensions of the car are quite arcane, and I'm not going to try and explain that right now, but I, there was some rule change to the floor about the radius of the corner of the floor, I think, and... The teams were given some time to make their vehicles compliant and Haas was uncompliant at Monza and they basically claimed that they their supplier couldn't get them a new floor to meet the regulations in time. Um, but the FIA weren't impressed and um, disqualified them. Wouldn't their supplier be Delara? I was. Delara certainly, uh, they designed... The, the chassis don't they but I suspect Delara don't do all the composites work in house I, I don't know that for a fact but it could it could be Delara or it could be uh, another uh, another shop if it is Delara uh, it, it increases the chances that even if it was another shop it'd be Italian so someone hop in their panda and get the parts <laughs> over there you know, I mean, I, they, yeah, it could be Italian, or it could be it could be somewhere around their base in the UK, right? So I don't know if they're if they're sourcing parts exclusively from Italy, or they're also using many of the you know composite shops that are in in the Silicon Valley of Formula One in England. But either way, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was Haz's fault, or I mean, you know, they're the ones ultimately going racing, so they have to take the blame for having a car that didn't meet the rules. I'm afraid it was just a sad irony that it was Romain Grosjean because, <laughs> you know, he he's had a rough season. The last few Grand Prix, it does seem like he's starting to bring it back um, into uh, into a more sane place, scoring some points, having some good results and all this. But to be disqualified, uh, it was a rules infraction. It wasn't something he did in the car that was uh, considered malicious or anything that part oh, that's right it wasn't his fault at all so right. yeah he was he was blameless but you know on the plus side it meant that sergey scored his first you know f1 world championship point and williams had a double finish and so as far as i was concerned good result so uh job done patty Lowe is officially the best technical director in the history of uh technical <laughs> directors yeah, because both the Williams, the championship-winning team Williams, that's been around for over 40 years, scored points. Come on, man. I mean, this is getting really hard. I mean, first of all, this is this is Monza. This is this is the strongest race for this chassis. It has been for years. The Williams 
makes a slippery chassis, but they're weak on downforce. So this is the place where they would have better chance. And, uh, you know, certainly you could, uh, you could, uh, blame the drivers for a few tenths of a second here and there, but I don't know. I mean, it's great. You're absolutely right. It's great that they had a double point scoring finish, but I'm still, I'm still underwhelmed. No, and you were right to be underwhelmed. I mean, they're having a, an awful, awful season and, um, you know, this will be one to forget very quickly after it ends. But I'm looking for any rays of hope that they, they might be turning a corner and getting on top of their problems and there might be something better in 2019, honestly. So that's that's where I'm coming from. But yeah, I mean, it's the fact that Force India should have their entire points removed and yet after one race should have scored twice as many points as Williams <laughs> the entire season, you know, and, and they are both independent uh, Formula One teams with probably similar budgets, and yet uh, Force India are showing how it should be done, and Williams are showing how it shouldn't. Unfortunately, right? Yeah, exactly right. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 endlessly hopeful that Williams can turn it around, but endlessly frustrated that they haven't yet. You know, I I have to think that development on this year's car, if it's not done, it's close to done. And they're focusing on 19 already. That would be my assumption. But, I mean, the, the big news is they're not the slowest team anymore. <laughs> McLaren have now taken that honour. <laughs> well. <laughs> For the last couple of Grand Prix, they've been right at the back. I mean, it really is awful. Yeah, well, you know, it's fascinating that they had a championship-winning car when they had Honda Power, but when they switched to Renault Power. <laughs> and I, I interviewed Zach Brown in June when he was in Detroit for the Detroit Grand Prix, the IndyCar race, you know, he was saying, you know, we're fourth in the constructors, and if we can keep that, that'll be the first time in more than five years or the fifth in the fifth in five years that we've done better than fifth. And I was like, oh, boy. Uh, and sure enough, you know, <laughs> things turned south. And Alonzo's announcement of leaving Formula One, I don't think that surprised many people, but that's not going to help McLaren. Alonso is still one of the one of the best drivers in the world, and it's going to be hard to see, especially if they replace, uh, especially if they're a full. You know, Carlos Sainz he's a strong driver, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Carlos Sainz would be as good at development, as good at eking out the car when it's wounded. I mean, Alonso just finds pace in just the most amazing places in the most harrowing of circumstances. And that's what's kept McLaren alive. You know, Stoffel has been, uh, you know, milk toast. I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Sainz is going to be able to, you know, I mean, that's not going to be the same as it. Oh, yeah. Those are big, I, big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, Alonso is a huge loss to McLaren. I, I totally understand why he's, uh, uh, he's saying he's not retiring, right? He's just stepping away. So he's leaving the door open to return. But, but yeah, I mean, there's for sure McLaren have lost a bit of, if not ultimate qualifying speed, certainly race pace. I mean, Alonso's ability to extract everything out of the car for the entire race is pretty legendary. And, uh, you know, there's few on the grid or in, in the history of Formula One that could extract as much out of a car as he could. So, yeah, I don't think it's any disservice to science to, to say that's probably a slight retrograde step there. Any other Mazda, Monza results specifically you want to touch on? Yeah, well, I think um, I was a little amused by Verstappen's driving. I mean, he clearly pushed Botas off the track, right? And uh, was fully deserving of his five-second penalty. Oh, and then, 100%. Yes. Yeah, and then drove like a spoiled brat, costing himself, um, you know, a possible um, fourth, well, if not a fourth, fifth place. Right. I mean, you know, he just made it easy for Vettel. Vettel didn't have to pass him on, on the track and was able to close up. What was it? A, sec, a seven second gap or something like that to get well within the five second buffer zone that yeah. uh, he'd been penalized by. So, you know, it's just really silly. I mean, it wasn't like Botas had done anything toward him. I mean, it didn't look like Valtteri was ever going to pass him, did it? Uh, and obviously he didn't even have to try after well, the five yeah. second penalty was issued. But it just it just The spoiled, first few laps, it seemed inevitable. But yeah. then... Then uh, Verstappen made his car wide in mm -hmm. effective ways, and Botas just wasn't able to push in the right places, and he wasn't close enough 
coming through the Parabolica to be able to have a good run. It was uh, a little bit disappointing to see the Botas couldn't push harder, but yeah, Verstappen had his number effectively. And then, you know, but you, you described it perfectly. And uh, he, you know, he kind of shot himself in the foot. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the time penalty. I mean, I appreciate that at the end of a race, if you deem someone guilty of something, then the most effective way is to just add a few seconds to their time. But if you're actually in the middle of the race, why not force him to do a drive-through? Um, because that way, you you resolve the issue on track and you you free Botas up. He should have he should have had uh, the line into the chicane. Um, Verstappen forced him off, so I think that's perfectly legitimate. Um, and then, but then you know, at least Verstappen served his penalty and then could try and reclaim it when you're in that situation where you know you've just got a five second penalty is i mean it's psychologically it can't be very easy yeah well uh at the end of the day uh max verstappen is still fifth in the constructors championship which is ahead of his teammate daniel ricardo uh verstappen has 130 30 points compared to ricardo's 118 although when ricardo's uh engine is running he tends to do a lot better so uh, maybe he should look into more reliable engines. Lewis Hamilton is in the lead of the Drivers' Championship with 256 points. That's compared to Vettel's 226. Then it's a big drop down to third place. But it is Kimi Raikkonen in third place with 164 versus Botas with 159. Um, after that, it's Verstappen and Ricardo, And then you get down to uh, Nico Hulkenberg. With 52 points. And again, we're getting in this mid-pack where it gets a lot more interesting. Because you have Nico Hulkenberg with 52. Kevin Magnussen with 49. Sergio Perez with 46. Esteban Ocon with 45. Fernando Alonso with 44. Carlos Sainz with 34. And it starts to drop off again there. So, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how uh, that mid-pack stacks up after the last seven uh, Grand Prix happen. And what the other thing that I found interesting is that... It's a tighter constructor battle for first between Mercedes and Ferrari than it is driver's championship battle between Hamilton and Vettel. And considering uh, the performances, that's a real big surprise. Mercedes has 415 points. Ferrari has 390. And then it's a big drop down to Red Bull with 248. And then a much even much bigger drop down to Renault uh, with 86. I'm actually getting more and more interested in what's going to go on with uh, the constructor's championship. Yeah, it's tight. Absolutely no doubt. I mean, it's um, it could still go easily either way for either the drivers or constructors championships, I think. One final thought before we leave uh, Grand Prix racing um, is I don't know if you ever check out the actual F1 website. Um, it used to be pretty awful. Uh, it's slowly getting better. And one thing that I was enjoying uh, post uh, Monza was they had some really great videos of onboard footage that I don't recall seeing during the course of the race. Um, and you get to see a lot of some of the lower order or middle order drivers and some of their more interesting moments throughout the race. Um, one of the highlights for me was Magnussen, who managed to miss both chicanes on the first lap <laughs> um, for reasons that weren't apparently clear from the uh, onboard footage, which gave me a <laughs> That's chuckle. That's great. Yeah, so I, you know, I, if you haven't uh, checked it out in a while, I'd go back and, and, and have a look. It's, it's got some been quite a little interesting while. stuff. Yeah. yeah, I largely just look for the standings. But uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out. That is good advice to me and to our listeners. I do want to jump to IndyCar. IndyCar has had a lot of races um, after it had a shorter summer break and then just boom, 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 three Grand Prix. Now they have a weekend off and their finale is next weekend. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they, wow. they end they end middle of September. and uh, But in Pocono, uh, Robert Wickens had a massive, massive car accident. He broke a lot of bones, has uh, spinal cord injuries, mm -hmm. and uh, it's unclear how extensive the spinal cord injuries are just yet. But there was been this weird debate about the... Um, safety of an Indy car versus the safety of a Formula One car. And people uh, equated the accident that happened at Turn 1 at Belgium to the accident that happened at Pocono. Pocono <laughs> is a super speedway, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And Spa, while a fast track, is not that terribly fast going into Turn 1. So we're talking about the difference between 
um, a few cars um, having a fender bender going into turn one at maybe 50 or 60 miles an hour. Maybe it was 80 or 100 at the first collision with Hulkenberg into Alonzo versus Robert Wickens going probably about 215 miles an hour when he hit a wall and a catch fence. So the fact that Robert Wickens didn't come to a rest in several pieces is just remarkable how incredibly strong and safe the IndyCars are. Wickens does have uh, several broken bones and injuries to deal with, but there's still a chance, and I'm still hoping, that he can make an eventual full recovery. So more than anything, I want to I wanna make a point that the IndyCars are incredibly safe, and uh, they do an amazing job, and that Robert Wickens has proved to be a very strong IndyCar driver, and uh, I've been a big fan of his this year, and I really hope and sincerely hope that he, he can make a full recovery. He's currently at um, a hospital in Indiana, in Indianapolis, Indiana, that are used to IndyCar drivers coming in with injuries. So that's certainly not a bad sign. But I don't know, did you see the accident at all? No, I didn't see the accident. Obviously, I echo your thoughts about hoping he, he has a speedy recovery and a full recovery. I, I did notice that the max G of Ericsson's crash was 28 G, which isn't that high uh, based on what other acceleration, decelerations have been encountered during other F1 or IndyCar crashes. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the impact energy is the square of the velocity of the car. So, you know, if you're doing 100 miles per hour, versus 200 miles per hour, you don't have double the energy, you have four times the energy. So therefore, um, yeah, you're talking apples and oranges. And the fact that he's still alive is a testimony to the strengths and well engineering of the the Indy cars. So yeah, people need to be a little bit careful about that. Um, I know there's been some very high G impacts in Indy cars like 70, 80 G uh, and the drivers have, you know, been able to even walk away from those types of shunts. So I think, you know, the, um, the, the, the basic design of the vehicle, the, the probably the, the impact structures and the, the actual carbon fiber tubs are probably very similar. You, if you put the two side by side undressed, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them apart other than maybe the IndyCar tubs are probably designed to be a little bit larger. But um, the basic fundamental engineering that goes into them is probably exactly the same. You're talking about the nature of the track, the nature of the actual accident itself uh, is really what's determining the type of injuries the drivers sustain. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Godspeed to Robert Wickens. Um, but another point to make, they recently, this past weekend, they had a race at Portland International Raceway, which is a cool track in the Northwest. And uh, it was a lot of, it was just a lot of great racing and, so I will once again uh, rah rah cheer cheer for IndyCar racing as a pure, purer form of just motorsport to watch, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I want to say going into the finale, going into the Sonoma finale, middle of set, there are four drivers uh, mathematically eligible to win the championship going into the last race, and that's uh, four drivers from I. Th- think i have to go i'm they think it's four drivers from three different teams so there's uh there's still a lot to play for as well so i'm definitely looking forward to it it's uh it's going to be a good race to watch but that is it to talk about for racing coverage right now wait 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 because it is time for trivia (laughs) now uh, here's here's how this is going to go. I asked this trivia question, um, but I do not believe you've heard this question, Chris, if memory serves. And uh, and if I start asking the question, you'd be like, oh, no, 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 you did ask this question. I know. Stop me. But the question was uh, after the Hungarian Grand Prix, and it was, who is the driver whose win at the Hungarian Grand Prix is his only win of his Formula One career? I don't think you asked me this question before. I think I know the answer. I think it is Thierry Boutson who drove a Williams to victory. Ah, that is 
that is entirely possible, but not incorrect. according. <laughs> but incorrect. <laughs> not according to my. Not according to my research. Okay. The answer was, and you might uh, kick yourself a little bit for this one. Heke Kovalainen oh. won the race uh, for McLaren Mercedes in two thousand eight. It okay. was at. It was at first thought to be the first of many wins. Um, for the Finn, but no luck the rest of his career. I'm sorry, no luck for the rest of uh, 2009 and, and on to the season end. Kovalainen was dropped at the end of 2009. Geez, excuse me. So no luck in 2008. And at the end of 2009, Kovalainen was dropped from McLaren for Jensen Button. Kovalainen went on to race a few more years for smaller teams, but never reached the middle step of the podium again. So yeah, Heki Kovalainen won the Hungarian Grand Prix in 2008. That was his only win in Formula One. Yeah, completely forgotten that. So there we go. Bootsa yeah. must have scraped a win somewhere else. I well. I gotta I gotta start. Uh, if it we should this this should be a drinking game, Chris. This is a, <laughs> this is kind of a, a an obvious thing. I should have thought of a while ago. If I ask a question and you get it, I owe you a drink. If I ask a question and I stump you, you owe me a drink. Oh, yeah. Okay. And let's go ahead and uh, retroactively employ that rule and, uh, <laughs> and say that you owe me a drink. The next F1 race is going to be the 16th of September in Singapore. That's the 15th round. And it's going to be the same day is going to be the 17th round of the IndyCar race in Sonoma, California. And that is their finale. Uh, the World Endurance Championship's next race is it the is at Fuji, and that's the 14th of October. That's their fourth round. And the 11th round of IMSA racing is going to be at Laguna Seca, one of the coolest tracks. That's coming this coming weekend. That's the 9th of September. That's IMSA. But I want to thank you for listening uh, to us again, and uh, I apologize for people that did not like the over-month-long break. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Ooh, boy. That was a whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs>